Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Pastor Keith is enjoying some time with family out at the lake this week, so I'm continuing in our series through Hebrews, through the last couple chapters of Hebrews. I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. The passage that we're going to be covering this morning is verses 8 through 16. Our focus this morning will be deepening our understanding of what true worship is, what it means to be faithful in worship. But before we dive into our main passage, I need to take you back about 2,000 years or so and remind us of what worship looked like for the ancient Jew, the followers of God before Jesus comes onto the scene. Because if you remember the broad context of Hebrews, we are looking at a letter that was written presumably to mostly Jewish Christians. These new believers in Jesus, they were being drawn back into their old way of worship, including the ceremonial law, the system of sacrifice that surrounded the temple. And there were those who were saying, you must be part of the old system, even if you choose to embrace Jesus. And so we're going to look at why that's so dangerous. I want, you to, I want to paint you a short picture of what that looked like for the life of the Jew. What brought the people of God together was the presence of God among them. We first see this at Mount Sinai when God descends in a cloud and talks with Moses, gives him the commandments. And then later we see as the people of God are wandering in the desert, Moses instructs the people to build a tabernacle. We see God's presence signified behind the veil in a cloud where the priest would go in once a year and meet with God. And then we later see this in the temple that was built at Jerusalem. What I want us to think about and understand this morning is that one of the main aspects of this place of worship, the tabernacle, was the first stop when you entered into the courtyard of the tabernacle. The first stop for the worshiper of God was the altar. They would come into the courtyard, they would see the altar, and they would bring an offering. It was here that sacrifices were made. And so the picture here is the first thing that people were reminded of was that no one could come near to God without atonement being made through the shedding of blood. When it came to sacrifices, the book of Leviticus actually details uh, instructions for five different offerings that the people of Israel on a regular basis brought to the Lord. It talks about the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Since this is a study in Hebrews and not Leviticus, I'm not going to go through all of the different uh, issues surrounding the offerings and, and their significance for us today. But I do want to walk you through the process of bringing a sin offering to the Lord. Because it will be referenced in our text here in Hebrews 13 this morning. And it's described for us in the book of Leviticus in chapter 4. We won't read through it for the sake of time. I'll just kind of give you a summary of what the sin offering looked like. 
And so whether it was the priest, the congregation as a whole, or an individual that sinned against God, they were called to bring an animal. In the case of a priest, it was a bull. It was revealed that he had sinned against God, and now he was required to bring the sin offering. And so he would bring the bull to the tabernacle. He would walk in the entrance and be confronted with the altar. And the priest would bring the, the animal, the bull in this case, to the altar. And he would lay his hand on the bull's head. And this was a symbolic action. The sim- symbolism that was happening was the sin of the priest or the sin of the individual, the one who was bringing the sacrifice, was symbolically being transferred from the heart of the worshiper to the bull. And then as the offerer laid its hand on the bull, it would take a knife and it would slaughter the bull and the, and the blood would drain out. The blood would be collected in a basin. And then the priest would take the basin of blood and he would enter the tent. And inside the tent, there was another altar there. It was the altar of incense. There was a couple other items there. And then there was a great veil. And this veil was what separated the worshiper, the priest, from the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, that could only be entered in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so the priest would bring this bowl of blood into the tent, and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it seven times on the veil. And I think the significance of this is twofold. Number one, it signified the depth and the cost of sin. It was a reminder that the only way we can access God is through blood. It, it reinforced this idea that the penalty of sin is death. But as the priest brought the altar in and sprayed it on the veil, it was also a reminder of the cleansing nature of blood because it was through this action and what would come next that the priest would then be able to offer atonement and forgiveness of sins. So it's through this sacrifice that the worshiper was enabled to be back in right standing with God. And so the priest, after spraying the veil with the blood seven times, would then dip his fingers into the bowl of blood. And then he would put blood on each four of the horns of the altar of incense. And then he would leave the tent out into the courtyard back to the altar. He would take what was left of the blood and he would pour it out at the basin of the altar. And now it's here that something is significantly different than a regular burnt offering. It's at this point that in a normal burnt offering, the priest would skin the animal, trim the fat, cut the animal... And it would be then burnt and distributed and eaten by both the one who brought the offering as well as the priest. But this was different. Only the fat was burned on the altar. And this was said to bring a sweet fragrance to the Lord. But no one could eat of this sacrifice. And certainly not the one who brought the sin sacrifice. And so the animal, the hide and all of the meat was then transported outside of the tabernacle. In the temple period, it would have been outside of the temple and even outside of the city. And there the whole animal was consumed with fire. No one could eat of this sacrifice. And again, this was likely to emphasize the significance of sin against the Lord. That the one who brings an offering of, of sin to the Lord has no part in eating of that sacrifice. It was a reminder that they only could receive atonement and forgiveness through the work of God, by the grace of God. 
And it was through this ritual that the priest then would offer atonement for their sin and forgiveness was granted. And so this type of sacrifice would have been familiar for all any good Jew. This type of sacrifice, along with all following all the ceremonial laws, along with following the Sabbath, joining in the annual festivals, these things consumed the lives of those who followed God. By the time of Jesus, what we now refer to as the Second Temple Period, the temple was the center of cultural worship for the Jews. It was where people came and were taught. It was where people bought and sold goods. It was where they brought their sacrifices of offering and praise. The temple was central to Judaism. And so with all that in mind, it's really not that far of a stretch to understand that all of a sudden a, a Jew that was consumed with this system, and rightfully so in many ways, Jesus comes on the scene, and then what? He, he changes everything. And, and now they're like, well, maybe like I can accept Jesus, but I want to keep going to the temple, and I, I want to be faithful, and I want to keep offering sacrifices, and I, and I want to be part of that system. I think I should still take uh, consideration for what is clean and unclean as far as foods and how I bring my worship. But as we get into our text this morning, what the author of Hebrews tells us is that's a mistake. That's a dangerous and dreadful mistake for the follower of Jesus. We have no reason to go back to the old system. And so we're going to look at these temptations of these early Christians. We're going to see how it's really just a futile task to try to observe all of these rituals and customs. But in the process, we're also going to learn what it truly means to be faithful in worship. And so we're going to begin in verse 9 of our text this morning. And the first aspect of worship that I want you to consider is that the place of worship has shifted spiritually Here's the first few verses of our passage, verses 9 through 11. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Think back to that sin offering. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. The author of Hebrews is saying, you can't go back. Don't go back. We have something better. Christians, believers, followers of Christ have something better. There's a warning. Don't be led away by false teaching. Not only were they just drawn back because it was their way and custom of life, but apparently there were some promoting this teaching. There were false teachers saying, hey, you need to go back to the temple. You need to offer sacrifices. You need to observe the ceremonial and ritual laws. But the author points out this danger in that thinking. In verse 9, he says, it's grace, not foods. The ones who are devoted to foods, the ones who are continually offering sacrifices, even after Jesus has come, there's no benefit to doing that. Those who are devoted for 
to foods. This would certainly apply to those who are actively observing those ceremonial laws regarding clean and unclean foods. But in a broader sense, this also speaks to the entire old covenant system. We are told they benefit nothing by being devoted to the law. This is further emphasized in these verses, verse 10 and verse 11. Those who are serving the tent, well, they have no right to eat of that sacrifice. We're pointed, what's being pointed out to us is the insufficiency of the old system in light of what Jesus has already accomplished for these believers. Even in the old system, those who offered the sin offering had no right to eat it. They were still going to be soon separated again from God because of their sin. They were left waiting for a more perfect sacrifice. And the glorious truth of the gospel is what we looked at just a few weeks ago in our communion meditation. That as Christ came as an infinite God and as a human, He offered the perfect sacrifice once for all that can be applied equally to you and to me. The glaring problem with the sacrificial system was that it was continual and incomplete. It could only point worshipers to their ultimate need for a perfect Savior. So how did Jesus change this system? What really has shifted in worship? It's made clear in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It is here in this verse that Jesus fulfills the shadow of the sin offering. The shadow that the sin offering was always pointing to. That it would be Jesus who was brought outside the gates of the city, who on the cross bore our sin and bore our guilt. And so as you remember the sin offering, as the priest placed his hand on the head of the bull, symbolically transferring his sin to the animal in a much realer sense, Jesus takes our sin, our sin is applied and transferred to Christ's account. And He is sacrificed on our behalf. What happens to His blood? If you remember, the sin of the bull is taken into the veil, but it can't go inside the veil. It can't go into the presence of the Lord. The blood of the animal was only a temporary covering. But you'll remember when Jesus cried, It is finished. The world went dark. But what else happened? The veil was torn. This signified this shift from physical to spiritual. And so Jesus, functioning both as our sacrifice and our priest, takes His blood and brings it to the spiritual altar in the heavenly places, in the very presence of God Himself. It ended all sacrifices. It was the perfect and complete sacrifice that all the other sacrifices pointed to. This is how the commentator James Kaufman summarizes this whole argument made by the author of Hebrews. He puts it this way. Very well, he seems to say, you people who want to eat according to the rules of the old order, hear this. 
Even the priests of that order could not partake of the bodies of animals used in sin offerings, for they were burned without the camp. Very well, the true sin offering is Christ, who suffered without the camp, fulfilling the type. And they of the old order have no right whatsoever to partake of Christ, unless they shall repudiate the old order and identify themselves with him who suffered without the camp. Thus, the writer's argument is conclusive and overwhelming. Let his readers forget about keeping old rules and restriction. To keep them is to make Christ unavailable to him. So now if we fast forward back 2,000 years to our present day, It may sound absurd for you and me to be tempted to return to the old ceremonial law and sacrificial system. I have no desire to worry about bacon. I'm excited to eat bacon and shrimp and pork. I I am not tempted at all to go back to the ceremonial law. I don't have to worry about bulls and goats. I wouldn't know where to find one if I needed one. And so what's the application to us? Why does this really matter? This is just about first century Christianity and the Jews. But I'm not sure that this temptation is really that far of some other temptations that you and I might face. Because ultimately this teaching in Hebrews is not just about returning to the old covenant system. But also about coming to God in any other way outside of Christ. And so when you think that your your good works are giving you a better standing before God, you're in danger of missing Jesus. When you think that the bad things in your life are happening somehow because God is punishing you, you're in danger of missing Jesus. When you think that you've messed up too much, that you've failed too many times, you're in danger of missing Jesus. If you are ever tempted with the thoughts that you're unlovable, that God couldn't possibly care about you, that you don't have any worth or value in God's economy, you've missed Jesus. When you judge your standing before God, based on comparing yourself to the person next to you or your neighbor, you're in danger of missing Jesus. Anytime we are trying to approach God on our own terms, we are falling into the same trap as these early Christians. And we're in danger of missing out on Jesus. You see, the place of worship has shifted from the physical altar to the spiritual altar at the foot of the cross, which is all embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. But while the place of worship has shifted spiritually, the substance of worship has remained the same. We'll look back at verse 7 next week when we look specifically at leaders. But I think it's important to go back and read verses 7 and 8 to see what the author, the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Verse 7 says this, 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What's significant to us here this morning is that we're called to imitate their faith. Not the way in which they observed the law. Not the way in which they obeyed. Not their personality. Not anything really about these leaders other than their faith. And then the question comes, well, their faith in what? Or maybe more aptly, in who? And so again, the author tells us in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Believers are called to imitate the faith of those who follow Jesus. Why? Because the faith hasn't changed. It's always been about Jesus. It was about Jesus yesterday in the Old Testament system. It's about Jesus today, and it will be about Jesus forever. And if you're tracking along, you may say, yeah, but it doesn't quite make sense to me. Because how can you say that Jesus hasn't changed, yet the place of worship has shifted? Well, we can say that because the substance of worship has remained the same. It has always been about grace. If we were to go back and just read those couple verses, 9 through 11... It's made clear that allegiance to foods or systems is not what gives us spiritual nourishment. And it never was. Only grace does. We would do well to understand that the sacrificial system was always a system of grace. Go all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve sin. What happens? They deserve to die, yet God intercedes. He provides an animal. Blood is shed and their sin is covered. But they didn't deserve it. This is a definition of grace. Unmerited favor. From the very beginning, the sacrificial system was always about grace. That God would provide a way for His people to be with Him. The system always pointed out that God would send the Messiah, the promised one, to be the perfect and ultimate sacrifice. As we trust in the Savior, we are saved by His grace. And even beyond our understanding of grace, we also see that the sacrificial system, it was always the heart of the worshiper that mattered most. This is seen most clearly in Psalm 51. David has sinned, and he has sinned bad. And the good news of Psalm 51 is that he has acknowledged his sin. He is broken in his sin, and he cries out to God. And he says this in verse 17 of Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Not bulls and goats, but a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David came to realize is that what God cares about most is our heart. And in the old system, the sacrificial system, the true worshiper would not just bring an animal for sacrifice, but they would bring their hearts. And as they laid the sacrifice on the altar, 
They were also bearing their heart and trusting in the grace of God for their atonement and their forgiveness. See, the sacrifice was just as ineffective and useless to the sacrifice, the offerer who brings it, and their heart was in the wrong place. It was ineffective. It wouldn't have been applied. Because the physical sacrifice was not what brought forgiveness. It was only the vehicle by which grace was given to those who came to God with a sincere heart. And so then we should ask, what does it look like to offer our hearts to God? Well, the next two verses make it clear. Verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 13. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What does it look like to offer our hearts to God? Well, first, it means we must identify with Christ. We, too, must go outside of the camp. We must acknowledge our sin. We must lay our hearts on His altar. Our life is aligned with His. But we also must bear the criticism of the world. We're to go to Him outside the camp, but we're also called to bear the reproach He endured. We follow in the steps of Jesus. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us because Jesus taught His disciples during the entirety of His ministry that following Jesus isn't always going to be easy. That we are going to be called to take up our cross daily. That we should expect the world to hate us because they first hated Him. We are to give up our own ambition. Because we are identified with Christ, we take on His mission. Often following Jesus won't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to sell all your things and move across the world to go tell some people about Jesus. It doesn't make sense to... Take a lesser job maybe so you can get plugged in at a good church. It doesn't make sense to give a significant portion of your income to some church. There's a lot of things that the world does not understand about Jesus and following Him. And we will get criticized. We will get ridiculed. Why would you follow that book? We identify with Christ. We bear the criticism of the world willingly. This is what Spurgeon has to say to those who may be questioning this burden. He says, A sorry life your master had, you see. All the filth in earth's kennels was thrown at him by sacrilegious hands. No epithet was thought coarse enough. No terms hard enough. He was the song of the drunkard, and they that sat in the gate spoke against him. This was the reproach of Christ, and we are not to marvel if we bear as much. Well, one says, 
I will not be a Christian if I am to bear that. Skulk back then, you coward. To your own damnation. Skulk back, you coward. To your own damnation. But oh, men that love God and who seek after the eternal reward, I pray you do not shrink from this cross. You must bear it. This is what it means to offer our hearts to God. It doesn't make sense to the world, but it's what we know we must do. We do this because our hope is fixed on eternity. Verse 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We must fix our hope on eternity, not this world. As we identify with Christ, as we walk on this earth, we are giving hope because we look to Him. We understand that any reproach that we might endure on this world, that's the worst we're ever going to have it. We know that just as God promised a Messiah to save us from our sins, Jesus promises to return and make all things Right, And he is the same yesterday and today and ever and forever so we can trust his promises. It's important that we realize Jesus did not come and die to make this world a better place. He came to die so that you and I might one day walk with him. And an eternal city that will far surpass any glory that this world has to offer. And so, although the place of worship has shifted, the substance of our worship has remained the same. It's always been Jesus. This helps make sense of Jesus' teaching in John 6 when we consider the connection with the sin offering and Jesus being our sin offering I won't read this whole passage on the screen. It's verses 51 to 58 of John 6. But I just want to point out a couple verses here. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. This is a callback to what the priest could never eat of. Now Jesus freely invites us to eat of His sacrifice, His flesh, and His blood. For my flesh, Jesus says, is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What does it mean to partake, to take of Christ, his body and his blood? We identify with him. We understand and receive his grace. We place our faith in his atoning work as our sin offering on the altar of the cross. As Christians, this is our great privilege. Jesus has invited us to take and eat of this table of grace freely because our sin has been paid for. The work is complete. And as long as we are in fellowship with Him, we can enjoy the fruits of His sacrifice. So we've learned that the place of worship has shifted. The substance of worship has remained the same. 
And here, lastly, as we approach the last two verses in our passage this morning, we see that the sacrifices of worship have been transformed. These last verses in our passage points to a deeper, a fuller understanding of what faithful worship truly looks like. I'm sure some of these early Christians coming out of the ceremonial law and the rituals and the whole temple system are wondering, well, do you mean I don't have to offer any sacrifices anymore? Did Jesus really, that one sacrifice, no more? And the answer is, the sacrifices have been transformed. We are no longer going to take sacrifices from our herd, but from our heart. It's not going to be a physical sacrifice, but it is going to be a spiritual sacrifice. Yes, God still expects His people to bring sacrifices to Him. But they've been transformed. What do they look like? Verses 15 and 16. Through Him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What are these sacrifices? Put it simply, we could say they're sacrifices of praise and they're sacrifices of love. Sacrifice of praise is clearly said in verse 15. What do we learn about them? They're continual. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Paul tells us that we are to rejoice always. To be thankful in every season. And that's when praise becomes a sacrifice. You know, it's pretty easy to praise the Lord when everything is going well. You don't really have any problems or issues. But what about when things go wrong? What about when your world is collapsing around you? What do you do when you're facing suffering and hardship? You praise anyway. This is your offering of praise to our Creator. The One who has extended us grace. And so we sacrifice our hearts and we offer praise to Him. They are heartfelt. And it's significant that the writer tells us the fruit that this praise is fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Because what we learn about fruit, and especially here the fruit of the lips, it reveals our inner character. If you're not in a continual habit of praise, you need to look inside. You need to analyze your heart. Am I offering my heart? Am I sacrificing praise to the Lord? You know, someone said, loving hearts must speak. How often are you speaking praise to God? How might your life change if you simply acknowledge God's grace and goodness all the time, even when things are going wrong? We have an opportunity to offer up this kind of praise every Sunday. This is why we gather here. This is why Wab leads us in worship, not just singing, in worship. 
a sacrifice of praise as we lift up our voices and we sing together, not for each other, as much as for God. We're offering praise to Him. We often read aloud the Word of God because this is a way that we can praise God with our lips by reading His Word together. This sermon and every sermon that is preached from this pulpit ought to be a sacrifice of praise where God's grace and goodness is made evident to the people. We offer these sacrifices of praise because we know that through Jesus we can draw close to God. We're called to offer sacrifices of praise, but also sacrifices of love. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Our sacrifices are love. We do it in word and in deed. There's a real practical Does it look like to be faithful in worship? Are you doing good works? Are you sharing what you have with others? What could this look like in your life, this week even, to offer up sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of love? Could you do a good work for a neighbor? Could you do a good work for a neighbor before they come to your door and ask you to? Could you go out and meet someone new? Could you share, use your lips to point people towards Jesus? Could you serve in your church? Right now we have a need for some children's workers. So we can have children's church going on as we try to return back to a little more normal services. You could host a home group. You could look around and I'm sure there's some young families that could use some love. We have benefit of that greatly here at the chapel. And there's others around that would benefit greatly by you going and saying, how can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I point you to Jesus? I'm thankful and proud to be of a church that understands what it means to be generous. Even through this crazy time, we've met our budget. We're ahead in our missions giving. Because I think we understand this truth that we are called to share what we have. And that comes through as we share and give our tithes and offerings to the Lord as they are used here in this place. But also as we give over and beyond to the work of missions that is happening across the globe. We also have a new opportunity to get involved with even starting this week where we can share of what we have. We've literally just a few days ago, signed on with a new partnership with Crossroads Elementary. We're part of the Wentzville School District here in Lake St. Louis, and we called up the district, and they have a need at Crossroads. There are some students there in the elementary school that have been identified as food insecure. They need some food. They need some help during the weekend when they don't have the opportunity to come in and to eat lunch. And so we said, hey, we have an abundance here. Our people are generous. This is an opportunity to share of what we have. But you can help in this effort. We'll be letting you know what kind of food supplies we need. This will most likely be an an arm out of our food pantry. But what we really need is 
some people to come in and help fill these bags. This week, since this is the first time we're announcing it, me and my wife, Stephanie, we're bringing our three kids up. And us as a family are going to offer a sacrifice of love. We're going to fill these bags. We're going to pray over these bags. And we're going to pray that the community and these kids especially see our heart of love as a church who knows Jesus, who has access to God. And so you too can be part of this new partnership, a simple way to show our love. So even today, you can take out that connect card. You can write on that white space, say, hey, I'd love to be involved in that ministry. We're still working out the details of how that will work, but we'll get in contact with you. Maybe there's some other thing that's on your heart that you know, man, I need a sacrifice. I need to do some good works to be generous with what I have. Don't wait. Offer that up to the Lord. All these sacrifices are through Him, through Jesus. And they should point others to Jesus as well. There's a hymn, as we close, it's called, We Rest on Thee. And this hymn has a story because it was a favorite of Jim Elliot. And if you know the story of Jim Elliot, a few friends who were committed to be missionaries to Aka Indians. They committed to go. They went outside the gate. They bore the reproach of many who said they were crazy. And they said, we're going because we love Jesus and they need to know him. But Elizabeth Elliot, in, in her book about this experience with the Aka Indians, the title of chapter 16 of her book is, We Go Not Forth Alone. And she writes this. Shortly before their death on Palm Beach, they sang this hymn. Elliot writes, As the close of their prayers, the five men sang one of their favorite hymns, We Rest on Thee, to the stirring tune of Finlandia. Jim and Ed had sung this hymn since college days and knew the verses by heart. On the last verse, their voices rang out with deep conviction. We rest on Thee, our shield and defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors, we rest with Thee through endless days. And with that confidence, they went outside the camp. They went to the Aka Indians only to die. But they knew this truth that Jim Elliot put so well. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. This is what the author means with our hope fixed on the city that is to come. This is a portrait of faithful worship. One who knows that we worship at the altar of Christ, that we are enabled by grace and we willingly sacrifice all that we have at the altar of Christ and for the sake of those around us as we point them to him. That's what it means to be faithful in worship. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I hope 
This room is as challenged by this message as about worship that I have been this week. Lord, forgive us for the times that we are not offering praise when we ought. Forgive us for the times that we have trusted in our own way to come to You. Forgive us for taking Your grace lightly. Lord, let us go outside the camp and be with You. Let us take hold of Christ. Let us rest in your grace and let us work for your glory. Lord, change us, transform our hearts to be ones of worship. We pray these things in your name.